Welcome to episode 560 with my guest, Dr. Wendy Suzuki. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the all this shit bouncing around in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Um, I'm a nut job. I don't know if that qualifies me, but uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com, mentalpod, also the social media handles you can follow us at. And if you, uh, I always kind of shy away from doing this, but uh, would love any kind of uh, donations you guys could make to the podcast. Um, you can do it through PayPal or Patreon. Uh, those links are on the on the website. Um, and you can support us uh, non-financially by subscribing to the podcast and downloading uh, all the episodes as they come out. That's uh, And filling out a survey. That always helps the podcast. Uh, and speaking of surveys, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. And LMC asks, uh, you've often talked about cutting ties with your mother. I'm curious how other family members or siblings feel about your decision to do so. Are they supportive? Um Yes, I only have uh, one sibling. It's a brother, and uh, he has been supportive of me, thank God, because I know a lot of people when they cut ties with a unhealthy or abusive uh, caregiver or even a sibling, uh, they just they, they can't accept it. They judge that person, and uh, that just adds so much stress to to that that person. I mean, they can, they can have their own opinions uh, about it. But my, my take is, let that person have their own experience and make their own choice. And um, yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm grateful that I don't have to deal with the added burden of a family member resenting me. This is uh, just a little snippet from the Back in Time survey. And this one is so creepy. Greta Grimaldo shares, um, I would go back and tell myself that it wasn't right for her father to force her into posing for a photo while kissing her dead grandfather on the forehead. And I'd give her a big hug. I got to assume that that was at a funeral or on a hunting expedition that went wrong. Oh, man, I hate watching people force other people into taking photos or getting super controlling and how people pose for the photo. This is from the love survey filled out by a bucket of spaghetti and meatballs. And they write, I love my dad. Since my healing journey began, I've realized the struggles inflicted on us as children were not overtly his fault, but a product of capitalistic society. He came here as a Haitian immigrant and gave every ounce of energy he had to raise my brother and I completely on his own. He is a taboo, a single black father rather than the absent black father narrative we hear all too often. I love allowing myself to enjoy food. 
I spent two years as a vegetarian and six months as a vegan, and ever since I've begun eating meat again, it's been difficult to enjoy the food as I keep putting myself down for inflicting harm on the animal, the environment, my body, etc. But then I redirect my thinking to remind myself that the greatest honor I could give to this animal is to at least enjoy its damn flesh without the back and forth and negative thinking. When I finally allow myself to enjoy, I can get lost... uh, in the plethora of flavors that explode in my mouth. I'm sorry, plant eaters, but it is just not the same. I love that my current partner gives me space, and when I enjoy that time by myself, it's a reminder that I am healing from love addiction. In the past, every moment away from my partner would feel so dragging and draining as if life didn't matter until I was near them again. Since spending time alone and discovering hobbies that I now can't live without, I savor and welcome every moment I have to myself. That fucking fires me up. That is so awesome. And it is such a hard place to get to. Man, high five. I love being a woman, fluid, sexy, sensual, powerful, and intelligent. I love the person I've become and how I navigate situations now in my life. I love that I will never stop learning how I can help those around me and how I can be better. I love that I allow myself to be human and to feel and to be patient and to rest when I need. I love myself dearly. God, that is so great. That is just like... If you can get to the place where they are at, you have grabbed life by the horns. God, do I hate that phrase. (laughs) But that just makes me so happy, what I just read. This is an awful moment filled out by Alyssa. And she writes, One day when a new episode of this show popped up on my podcast list, I was excited to see that you were interviewing a person that hosts another podcast that I love. Since I listen to podcasts quite a bit, I've developed some significant attachment to the hosts, including you, to the point of thinking of you and others as my podcast parents. But since I also grew up in a household with some really tense conflicts between my actual parents, that caused me a lot of stress. I suddenly began worrying that you and the other host wouldn't get along during the interview. During the whole show, I noticed being tense and imagining myself trying to defend to defend each of you to the other and trying to get you both to like each other. When the interview completed without one of you angrily crying or abruptly ending the conversation by storming off, I experienced a huge wave of relief and laughed at myself for having been so anxious about two people I've never met arguing in a pre-recorded interview. Oh my God. I think I know the episode that you are talking about. And after it ended, we got into a light knife fight. Uh, there was no stabbing. There was a lot of grazing um, because uh, it was fencing. Is that the stupidest sport? Fencing. Let's stab each other for points. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. uh, And a trans man who calls himself Lumberjack asks, how do you choose who to interview? Do they apply to you in some way? Do you ask people 
who are in some way connected to your life. Uh, if we know of someone who we think would be a good interview, how do we get them in contact with you? Is that enough questions for one tiny box? Um, there is no one way that I get guests. Uh, sometimes people will email me through the website and pitch themselves as guests. Sometimes it's uh, a PR person that handles them. Sometimes uh, I invite friends in my life or maybe somebody that uh, who I've uh, seen in a documentary, uh, someone that friends recommend. There, yeah, there is there is no no one way. But good question. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. If you've never tried online therapy, why wouldn't you try it? Why wouldn't you do it from the comfort of your own home or your car or wherever you can find a, a nice private little space? Or maybe you want to do it in public. Maybe you want to do it in the middle of a coffee shop and, and let the world know that your uncle is pissing you off and that uh, you fantasize about crossing into the oncoming lane and ending it all. <laughs> wow, that that took a dark turn. Uh, I've been using BetterHelp for a couple of years now and uh, been really happy with the quality of counseling that I've gotten, uh, the convenience of it, and uh, I just I really recommend it. So if you're interested in knowing more about it, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Uh, make sure you include the slash mental part and uh, just fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor they feel is a good fit for you, they will match you up with one and you can get uh, 10% off your first month of counseling. And by the way, there are some uh, rumors going around about online therapy um, that they share your information with third parties. And that is not true. Uh, with better help. So if the rumor mill said that 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 is not the case. Um and you need to be 18. Forgot to include that. And this is from the struggle in a sentence filled out by my anxiety is an avalanche and they write about their depression. Chronic dep depression feels like life itself is a waiting room about their alcoholism and drug addiction. I stopped drinking years ago, but I still fantasize about everyone in my life being gone or dead so I can drink in peace. About living with an abuser. As a kid, I used to spend hours in my closet so that I wouldn't have to be around my abuser or have them scare me when they opened my bedroom door. I even brought blankets and pillows into the closet to sleep there on occasion. I still hide in my closet and I live in a different country now, and I'm in my 30s. Snapshot from her life. I started getting abused at 12 at night. I used to refrain from drinking too many fluids because I didn't want to wake my abuser up while going to the bathroom. Also, I once wet the bed as a teen and then was hit for it and made to wash the sheets in the middle of the night by my abuser. Because I was on the track team in high school and still afraid of abuse or bed wetting and punishment, I would dehydrate myself. This then led to me sometimes passing out after practice or races. Fainting wasn't the worst part, though. The worst part was running the race, 
while hearing my abuser screaming my name in the stands. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. Let humans do this to each other. Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> well... <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Wendy Suzuki and uh, and three dogs. I am a dog <laughs> sitting, two dogs of a friend. So I don't know how, how crazy this is going to get. So uh, apologies in advance for the, uh, the jungle that's going on right now. Because I know if I close the door, they're just going to scratch at the door. <laughs> anyway, thank you for coming. Uh, you got a book out called Good Anxiety, yes. which... Uh, you did a TED Talk that got a lot of uh, views. Yes, and, I did. And uh, talk about what you discussed in your TED Talk. Obviously, you don't have to do the, the whole thing here, but you're you're a neuroscientist, mm-hmm. and uh, you've done a lot of research on yeah. anxiety and the brain. Yeah. So, so where do we begin? And you are a, a self-described anxious person. Well, uh, yes, I discovered how anxious I was in writing this book, Good Anxiety, because at first I was... I- I don't have that much anxiety, do I? But then in the process of writing the book, it's like, ooh, God, <laughs> I have a lot of anxiety, don't I? So yes, I definitely uh, um, uh, experience anxiety. And and first thing I want to say is that this book is not for people with clinical anxiety. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't treat people with anxiety. This is a book that uses the neuroscience and our current understanding of the brain to help people have a new approach to anxiety, which fundamentally is a protective process and try and get back to that protection that anxiety can confer on us using some of these neuroscience principles. So it's kind of a way of tweaking that uh, jumpy central nervous system that yes. kept us from getting crushed by a woolly mammoth. But yes. today, it's uh, you're late to the bank and it closes in five minutes. Exactly, exactly. And then we keep being worried about things because there's a 24-hour news cycle and there's always something to worry about. So we're, we're in a very highly anxious state these days. Uh, Talk about the relationship between fear and anxiety. Yeah. Uh, So fear is, uh, so anxiety is an emotion. Fear is an emotion. Fear often uh, um, is part of the emotions one's one feels. They're drinking buddies. Yes, exactly. They're drinking buddies. Um, 
And, uh, you know, we know quite a bit about the neurobiology of fear and threat, uh, a brain structure very, very involved in processing both of those things is called the amygdala. And the amygdala is also active um, in our states is of the, anxiety. The little almond-shaped thing buried? Perfect, yes. Yeah. Uh, deep in the temporal lobe, uh, that is the amygdala. And it is um, uh, my friend and neuroscience colleague, Dr. Joe Ledoux, also in my department in the Center for Neuroscience at New York University, uh, calls it uh, a wonderful threat detection system for our brain. If there are threats out there, that is when the amygdala gets active and it starts to activate this um, fight or flight uh, response that we have, getting ready to either fight or run away, getting the blood from our digestive and reproductive organs out to our muscles so that we are ready to 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 run uh, at the at a moment's notice. So that is uh, the the amygdala is very helpful. If we didn't have an amygdala, we'd be wandering around in the middle of traffic. We've been doing all this stuff because we didn't realize the threat. So it's very very helpful. It's just that. If it gets turned on all the time, mm -hmm. then lots of bad things happen physiologically in our brain. Um, um, PTSD is a, a great example of, of chronic long-term activation of the amygdala uh, and of the stress system. And uh, you were mentioning in your book, uh, which is called uh, Good Anxiety, you were mentioning uh, cortisol for mm -hmm. for people who maybe are returning home from war, or experienced you know traumatic uh, childhood abuse, or even just an uh, uh, an event that that was overwhelming mm -hmm. as an uh, as an adult. Uh, that this cortisol and adrenaline get shot into your body. Is is that triggered by the amygdala? Um, what what exactly is going on in the brain with somebody who isn't directly in the line of danger, mm -hmm. but whose brain is just pumping cortisol and adrenaline? Yeah. Does it start with the amygdala? Does it start with uh, a memory? What 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 goes on? What do you guys know about it? Yeah, so it can start in many, many different ways. And I think a really good part of the nervous system to start with is um, that part of the nervous system that uh, controls fight or flight. And um, that is uh, another name for that is the sympathetic nervous system. It's a whole set of um, nerves that when activated, and the amygdala is one of the structures that can activate it, when activated, that is the thing that increases our heart rate, that increases our respiration, and that pulls blood away from, uh, from our digestive system out to our muscles. But luckily, we have an equal and opposite force in the nervous system called the parasympathetic nervous system. And that does exactly the opposite. Opposite. It's called the rest and digest part of the nervous system that slows down our heart rate, slows down our respiration, and brings blood back into our digestive system so we can digest that wonderful Sunday brunch and blood back into the reproductive system. So... Um, uh, so it is this balancing act between these two parts of the nervous system. And these days, since 90% of the population identify as experiencing anxiety, it is the sympathetic or fight or flight system that is winning, that gets activated. And 
The difficulty is that uh, the system was evolved to respond to an immediate danger, the lion coming at us, you know, the snake about to, about to pounce. Um, but it can also be activated in the same exact way at the threat of a lion. Somebody, I heard a lion might be around. Oh my God. Uh, I, I don't see it, but, but it might be there. And of course, this happens all the time in our news cycles and our Instagram feeds. Mm-hmm. And that is essentially just as good as being in that war zone when you are in imminent danger because our, our nervous system is good at projecting. Right. And that's what happens. For, from what I understand, the, the front part of the brain, the temporal lobe, frontal lobe, frontal lobe yeah, is uh, kind of in charge of executive functioning and weighing things and, and making critical decisions yes. uh, more based on facts and, and reality mm-hmm. and cognition. Yeah. So what happens when uh, something is getting activated in the brain? Talk about any influence that the the frontal lobe might have sure. and how that interaction works with the um, sympathetic and is it called the sympathetic nervous sympathetic system? nervous system and yeah. the amygdala and, mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff okay. I mentioned it's some some type of dance that's, yes, that's going on exactly. and, and how much influence do we have over it yeah I know that's a long complicated question no, enjoy let, it. okay thank you let me try and break that down so here's what happens when we go into high levels of anxiety Anxiety. Something. Let, let's be very specific. Um, there is an outbreak of the Delta variant in your neighborhood. Oh my God, what's going on? I'm not sure. I am vaccinated, but but uh, but I'm not sure how protected I am. All sorts of things start going through your mind. You've had kids too, so right. all very very scary. And so what happens is your fight or flight response gets activated. Your amygdala. This is a threat. Your amygdala is being activated. And what ends up happening is you get higher and higher levels. You can get higher and higher levels of neurotransmitters, dopamine and noradrenaline in your system. And that can be good for your prefrontal cortex. But at too high a level, that ends up shutting down your prefrontal cortex. So in this moment of of danger, of possible threat, you lose your decision-making, one of the main decision-making brain areas in your brain because you have two high levels of these two neurotransmitters. That is not what you want to happen. So now the good news. Can we learn how to modulate that and control that? Because what you really want is um, uh, is better decision making processes during this this um, uh, this event. And so the answer is yes, we can learn to do that. How do I know that? Well, for the past twenty five years, I've been studying something called brain plasticity, which is the brain's ability to learn and respond in a positive way to the environment. There's also negative brain plasticity, which is you um, uh, you give yourself too much stress and, and eat too, many, too much bad food all the time, and uh, your brain does not you believe the negative well. voice in your head. Yes, exactly. Future trip, obsess mm-hmm. about the past. Yes. So, so what can you do? Well, let me start with immediate things. How do you, how do you start to learn and use this brain plasticity to respond in a better way to these stressful and anxious uh, situations? First thing is before you go too far down the road and get very, very anxious, here is the simplest, most immediate thing that can immediately start to calm your nervous system, start to calm that sympathetic nervous system. 
How do you do that? You activate the parasympathetic nervous system consciously with deep breathing. Remember how I say sympathetic decreases respiration mm-hmm. yep. and parasympathetic deepens breath. Well, that's one of the only things that I can do consciously. I cannot slow down my heart rate consciously. I can't make blood go into my digestive system, but I could deep breathe deeply and consciously. And I always love to recommend a simple four-part breathing. It's a four count on your inhale, a four count holding it at the top, a four count exhaling everything out, and a four count holding it at the bottom. And doing that just a few times really brings you and helps ground you into this moment and kind of reminds you, actually, that 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 lion isn't here right now. I am okay. My breath is still working fine. And um, that's, that's the first immediate tool. Uh, and then, and in fact, I'll, I'll say that one of the things I try to do in Good Anxiety is give my readers a very um, clear and powerful toolbox of activities that they can do to use their positive brain plasticity to um, make their bad anxiety good. And that's, uh, that's tool number one, deep breathing. Tool number two goes back to my TED Talk. My TED Talk wasn't about good anxiety. It was about my first book called Healthy Brain, Happy Life, about the transformative effects of exercise on the brain. And so um, um, uh, tool number two for good anxiety to, to quell, quell um, anxiety, feelings of anxiety, is move your body. Go out for a walk. You don't have to do a marathon. Go out for a walk. Walk around your house, your apartment. Take the stairs, just one flight up and down. Move your body because every time you move your body, it's like you're giving your brain a wonderful neurochemical bubble bath of transmitters like serotonin and dopamine and noradrenaline, but at the good levels that Mm -hmm. make you feel rewarded. So um, there are immediate tools in my toolboxes in good anxiety. And then there are more long-term tools that use brain plasticity to change our mindset, to start to change some of those behaviors, to encourage us to think about Do you know, can you predict some of these um, um, situations in your life that are going to cause anxiety? I think the answer to that is absolutely. I know that person that always makes me anxious. I know that situation. Well, then you can start to use some of the tools of emotional regulation to um, develop strategies for yourself to decrease those anxious feelings. Um, But My goal is not to eliminate anxiety. I think this is one of the keys and kind of the surprises. Anxiety is helpful. Anxiety is that activation, that fire, that fear that you, that you have. That fear has made me give some of the best talks I've ever given in my whole life. You're a comedian. I bet you a little bit of fear is good when you go on on stage. It it makes you alert. It makes you invested. You care about it. And yeah, there is a tipping point where then it begins to degrade your performance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about in good anxiety. Using that activation power of anxiety, but to your benefit. Uh, it's not getting rid of it. it that's, it, you know, it's not a fantasy here. This is real life. We're all going to have these emotions. They evolved for a reason. My book says, let's use this. Let's use it to our advantage 
embrace those emotions, realize we were going to have them, but know what the positive benefits are to them. Um, so that's that's one of the keys in the book. It's it's kind of like judo for the brain, you know. Mm, judo, yeah. you learn to use the other person's momentum exactly. against them. Yeah. So I have a number of kind of jujitsu move moments in there. Well, okay, you're going to throw that at me. And one um, that comes to mind is, what do you do with that what if list that comes up with anxiety? What if that goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? For me, that comes up right before I'm about to go to sleep and, you know, I could feel it. Sleep is coming on. And then that what if list Mm -hmm. comes on. And um, the uh, gift of anxiety that I talk about around the what if list, it came from a lawyer that I met at a birthday party who said, oh, you're writing a book about anxiety. You know, anxiety made me the high paid lawyer that I am today. And I said, Oh, do tell. What, how, mm-hmm. how do you mean? And she said that all of those worries about what if the other side says this, 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 what if they come this angle? What if they come that angle? She simply collected them together and addressed them one by one. And with each point that she addressed, she felt less anxious because she said, okay, now I have a a direct strategy for that possibility. So it's really turning your what if list into a to-do list. And it helps me because when that comes up in my mind, as it still does, I say, I'm going to do that tomorrow morning. I'm going to take care of it. And it is going to make my make my anxiety much less prevalent and make me more prepared for my day. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. Mm -hmm. So what do you do when existential dread, existential threats come up? Mm -hmm. The, you know, climate change, something that, yeah, we may be able to do our small part, but there's so much of it that we don't control. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. And I think about that a lot as well. And um, it, I, I give each one of us more credit than, um, than just, oh, you're just a little ant, a little ant can't do anything. Well, if I decrease my fossil fuel use, if I stop throwing away plastic, I can in my own life, in my own world, right here in my own house, start to change my carbon footprint. And so I give myself more credit, especially in Mm. these existential things. Um, There's too much hate in the world. Well, what if I can go out and and, um, be the anti-hate person? What if I bring more love, more friendship, more smiling face to, to the world? Is that going to change it and change the news cycle? No, but I will have an, uh, an immediate impact on my particular neighborhood. Uh, I, I love that. And it, it uh, sounds as if we're moving into kind of the spiritual realm mm-hmm. of the mind, body, mm-hmm. emotion, whatever, whatever you want to call it, which to me is a really fascinating thing because I view spirituality not at odds with science mm-hmm. as a mutually exclusive thing, but mm-hmm. rather something that works together, that yeah. there's an energy yeah. there. And yeah. sometimes the energy might be the energy of submission, mm-hmm. of acceptance. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean you approve mm-hmm. of what's going on, but you say, I- I'm powerless over what is happening right now. Where where can I find the beauty? Where can I bring the beauty? Where yeah. can I bring the, the love? Uh, 
have you been able to discover anything faith related and and the brain is anybody doing any kind of research on mm. um for instance people who believe in god versus people who are um atheists although i got to say i kind of hate that comparison because it, oftentimes people think that that atheists can't be spiritual mm. you know i think i think oftentimes the it, they're on the same page. They may believe in making the world a better place, but mm. but where they're seeking that energy out may differ. I'm sorry, I got on mm. a, a little tangent That's there. Okay. Post That's question, okay. but yes. I, I feel uh, <laughs> I feel like it's a really important topic because so many people um, who consider themselves faithless to me really do have a faith because they believe in the power of love and goodness mm. and and that that is their path mm-hmm. yeah uh, so you know i can't speak too much to the studies of um religiosity in the brain but where it comes into my book is in one of the gifts that I talk about that comes from anxiety. Um, and one of those gifts that I think is one of the most powerful gifts and un, unappreciated gifts is the gift of empathy. And so how does that, how do I go from anxiety that is just, you know, such a negative connotation word to empathy? And here's how I discovered it as I was writing this book. Um, I went back and realized and, and explored my own anxieties. And many of our anxieties have been with us for a very, very long mm-hmm. time since, since childhood. So mine that has been with me, uh, even though people might not, uh, see that in me now was I was a very, very shy child. And I was very awkward socially. And I always felt like, you know, I never had the good thing to say in a conversation. And, 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 um, and it was hard for me to ask questions in class, because I, I it was scary. It was very scary. And so that form of social anxiety, I think is very, very common. Was there a specific outcome that you could picture happening that, you know, people would turn to you and say, oh my God, what a stupid question, oh, yeah. or you're a dork or whatever. What what were the, the pictures that the mean part of your brain were, were painting? Uh, or was it based on experience? Um, it wasn't based so much about, well, you know, for social, it was like, you know, everybody else seems to have all these friends and how come I don't have more friends? And it must be because I'm not a fun enough person <laughs> or, gotcha. or, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't a cool kid. So, you know, the cool kids had all the friends and they were in the, the cliques and things. And I, I was never like that. So that was kind of experience. Um, but for asking questions in class, you know, I went into academia. I was very interested in, in science and wanted to participate. And there it was. What if you ask a stupid question? What if, what if they already told the answer and you're asking it and now everybody sees that you right. didn't pay attention right. and then you look like an idiot? And, um, some of that still cre- creeps in today as, you know, I'm at big science conferences. It's like, oh, do I really want to ask this? Um, so that has been with me for a long, long time. So how do I turn that into a gift or a superpower? Well, I realized I was doing that automatically because um, uh, as a teacher and a speaker and a TED speaker, obviously I've learned to get over this fear of, of public speaking and, and, and um, I've learned those skills. But 
when I get in front of my classroom, I know that there are many, many, many students out there that were just like me. And I could feel, feel that fear and that discomfort and that dissatisfaction that they're not able to interact and show me what they, what they know. And so what I realized I always did just naturally is I always made sure I was around 10, 15 minutes before class, just hanging out, just standing there. You know, you, you can come up and ask me anything, or I might even go over and say, Oh, what are you, what are you reading? Um, staying there after class, um, providing lots of opportunities. So it's not just if you're brave enough to raise your hand and ask me in front of the whole class your question, then you can say something. Right. And that form of empathy as a teacher came because of my personal form of anxiety. So um, while it's not explicitly spiritual, I feel it's such a powerful message for today because what do we need, what don't we need more in this world than some empathy towards one another? And what if we can look inside to our own anxiety and use that as a catalyst to help mm -hmm. other people with that same anxiety that we know so well? So that's one of the gifts that yeah. I talk about. And to me, th that that is spiritual um, because my definition of spiritual, everybody has their own definition for some people. It's do you go to church mm -hmm. every Sunday? For me, th that is meaningless because you might go to church, tune out, ignore everything that is being preached about and be an asshole as soon as you close your door in the parking lot. Yeah. Uh, whereas somebody who may be a complete atheist uh, returns their shopping cart. Uh, mm. You know, let somebody cut in front of them in line, compliment somebody who yeah. they, they think is struggling, do, does what you do, yeah. uh, you know, be, before class mm -hmm. or after class with the students. And, and that to me, uh, I guess to me, uh, one of the things that I think about is, is this improving someone's life or making the world a better place? And yeah. if it is, to me, that is my version of, uh -huh. of what spiritual yeah. is. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I, I agree. I think that there are many, many different ways to be spiritual and, um, it's a, it's kind of a loaded term. It's a so. very loaded term. <laughs> yeah. And I get a little nervous when it, when it comes up because I don't want, to uh, deny somebody's experience who's listening. I don't want people to feel like, oh, this is a God podcast mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm done. I'm done with this thing. I want it to be inclusive, but I also want to uh, kind of decrease the uh, the weight that labels uh, can have on people feeling included in kind of a communal experience. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and their own self-worth their mm -hmm. own idea of themselves is you know being uh, helpful to have in a room or even just alive yeah i think so many of us when we get into that place where we feel overwhelmed we we go to the place of i'm a burden and i can't sh i can't i can't handle my own life mm -hmm. why would i want to drag somebody else in uh, sharing what I'm going through, I'm just a burden, uh, mm. which, as as we know, is just simply not true. There mm. are people who get tremendous meaning and purpose in their lives from reaching out and, yeah. and helping other people. But in that moment, we're afraid to do it because we believe we don't belong to yeah. that 
that community yeah because yeah. it's got this label or that label exactly i mean one of the tools in the toolbox um addresses just that because um you know Empathy, it's on this theme of empathy and altruism as well. And I talk about, um, we know from studies that um, altruism activates dopamine in the brain. It makes us feel good when we do something for others, whether they know it mm. or not. And so um, I have a dear friend, uh, Cheryl, that inspired this tool. Uh, and she is an amazing cookie baker. She bakes cookies and she wins prizes for all of her pies and cakes and cookies. And so I get homemade cookies um, for my birthday and for Christmas. And it is just the most wonderful thing uh, to get homemade something, you know, she, she, yeah. something she did so well. And, um, and so the tool is Find something that you do well and easily. It can't be a chore. Mm -hmm. And give it to something, give it to somebody that would appreciate it. And you have to find your own thing. So Cheryl has her cookie making, which is wonderful. And so I thought, well, what, what do I have to give? And it turns out that one of my skills is dissecting sheep brains. I am a neuroscientist and I'm a neuroanatomist. Do you have anything more specific than that? Uh, more specific? No, <laughs> no, no, that is, that is such a sheep brain dissection. Yeah, I'm very good fantastic. at it. I, I've, I've dissected thousands of sheep brains. And um, so what I do for friends with young kids, like seven or eight years old, I will bring them to my lab and do a quick 10 minute sheep brain dissection with them. And at first it's all the gross, ew, ew, but then I let them cut into it and let them see inside it. And we use sheep brains because the overall structure is so similar to the human brain. Mm -hmm. So once you get a feeling for that neuroanatomical organization, you really do have a feel for the human brain organization. And I literally, I can do it in my sleep and the kids love it and the parents love it. Wow. That is surprising. To me, really, that, that, that they that, love it. That kids would love that because oh. I, I always imagined that it would be a very, very small minority of kids that would want to see or participate in something like that. That's amazing. You know, I participate in this organization called the World Science Festival in New York City. It's this huge science festival bringing science of all kinds to the general public, and I do the kids. I they've tapped me for the kids' day, which is the Saturday of this whole week, and I do quick ten minute sheep brain dissection so you can sign up for a tip uh for a particular time slot everybody comes in i do 10 minutes everybody gets to cut the brain and then they go and there are kids and their parents that are signing up and they oh please give, give me it can we can i come in can't we just do 11 instead of 10 so it's really really popular because it is gross but it's a uh, um well for them but it's it's um uh, it's done in a um, uh, in a very straightforward way with mm -hmm. real important um, real world world implications. And I love the questions. It's like where where is you know where do I think? Where is thinking happening in the brain? So it really inspires so many different questions about what does my brain do. So it's great. That's so cool because I I, I think we all know as children. 
sometimes the biggest gift that we were given w- was somebody embracing our curiosity yes. uh, around something. And it can set us on a path for life that yeah. is just really uh, amazing. The question just popped into my head. Um, are there any scientists that you've never met because they're you either don't have contact with them or they're deceased that if you could have dinner with them and mm-hmm. either thank them for their work or just kind of pick their brain yeah. uh, who are some of the scientists that that you have found inspiring fascinating uh or or somebody you just want to hug and say my god thank yeah. you for your contribution well, uh, the first one is my science mentor, Marion Diamond, who uh, did pass away a couple of, of summers ago. Um, she is a reason why I'm a neuroscientist today. She was an extraordinary scientist. She was an extraordinary teacher, the best teacher that I've ever had in my entire career. And um, I did get to acknowledge and thank her because they they did a documentary about her Mm. the last year she ever taught in person at uc berkeley and um what's the name of it it's called my love affair with the brain the life and science of dr marion diamond and uh it was on pbs it got nominated for an emmy award and i got to go to the emmy awards with uh (laughs) with the documentary filmmakers we lost to Mars, but it's it's the nomination that counts. Yeah. So um, it it was great. She she was extraordinary, and um, uh, and because they they discovered me, and I got to you know be one of the former students interviewed. I got reconnected with her in um, uh, and I, we didn't have dinner, but we had lunch together. But I would love to go back in time and talk to her. At the time when I was her student in the early 80s, uh, mid 80s, I guess. And um, just now that I know what it's like to be a professor and to be a full professor and go through those ranks and just ask her those questions about how did you, what was your strategy? Because I think you had it much harder than I I did. Not that there are 50% women in my department. There were certainly not. She was the very first woman to ever get a PhD in anatomy at UC Berkeley, the first woman ever. And then she became a professor of, of, uh, of, uh, anatomy and physiology. Um, so it would be Marion, Marion Diamond. Um, is there anything you would like to say to her? Uh, yeah, I would say that, um, you know, she made me, um, she made me the scientist that I am. She inspired the way that I wanted to teach. Um, I, I'll never forget the last day of her gross human anatomy class. That So just to give you a flavor, um, if you know Google University, Google went around to the most popular science teachers in the country mm-hmm. and, and filmed their classes and then put them online. She was number two. In Google University, out of all the professors they did for these classes that I got to take with her. And um, the last day of the time that I took gross human anatomy with her, um, students actually threw flowers at her. Wow. (laughs) The last day. So um, nobody's thrown flowers at me, but I teach 
as if I, I hope to deserve flowers being thrown at me. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean. I mean, I, I just try, I, I try and bring my authentic self as she always did and bring her love and her enthusiasm. That's why everybody wanted to take her class. She was fascinated with all aspects of anatomy and and you couldn't help but being fascinated too. It's so contagious. Yeah. It's so contagious. Uh, I took a couple of woodworking classes in, in high school. Mm. And I imagine much the way you feel when you walked into a lab. The first time I walked in there and I smelled the sawdust, saw all the piles of wood, it, it felt like home. Mm. And so I took as many woodworking classes as I could in high school. And as they progressed, I got to know Tom Stewart more and more, who was the woodworking teacher. And he was kind of a, uh, I, I wouldn't say he was a curmudgeon, but you know, he was, he was not a, a guy that, you know, was skipping around. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know if it was through making him laugh or just my passion for it, but he really ignited something in me. And uh, my last woodworking class with him, I was a senior and we had to decide a project that we were going to do, uh, and it would take us all semester, yeah. two classes a day, mm. all semester to do this. Wow. And uh, I suppose being a budding alcoholic, I chose a bar. And <laughs> and he said, oh, God, I, that's a lot to bite off. I mm. don't know if we're going to be able to, to do that. And he thought about it for a minute, and he kind of gave me a smile, and he said, let's try. Mm. And I felt... Like I had a father figure, mm. you know, my dad had kind of disappeared into uh -huh. the, into the background with uh -huh. his alcoholism. And here was a guy that, that was kind of, uh, saw me mm. and it meant so much to me. And years later, fast forward 30 years later, uh, I take up woodworking again mm. in my garage and I'm making cutting boards and it's thought suddenly occurred to me, I want to let him know how mm. much he meant to me. And so I got in touch with his daughter, who was a, a contemporary of mine, mm -hmm. and I got her dad's address and I sent him a cutting board. And she emailed me later and said he was so, so touched by it. And I... And, and it felt so good to, to let this guy know how important yeah. he was in my life and to yeah. give him something he can hold in his hand yeah. to, to really show that th mm -hmm. these aren't just words. This is... Yeah, you know, this is part of you that you put out into the world and it will carry on yeah. after after you're gone. And since that time, uh, you know, if I'm playing hockey with somebody and there's somebody who doesn't really seem like they're jumping into the social part of being a part of the team, uh -huh. I'll, sometimes I'll take them aside and I'll say, you know, it's really great having you on the team yeah. i love the way you play you mm -hmm. know the way you went back and got the puck in the corner uh -huh. in the second period was yeah. just was just great and it i think it makes me feel as good as it possibly yeah. makes them feel absolutely I get that that dopamine because there yes. are a lot of days where i feel like i'm dopamine starved yeah Mm-hmm. It's true. And and so that is you want to find those things and you've just uh um you know unveiled another beautiful tool um to counteract anxiety, which is gratitude, but more than gratitude, 
really going back and, and saying that, that thank you so much. You know, you don't know what this, this did for me for the rest of my life. And that can really, um, um, you know, that just spreads a lot of love in the world. And this sounds really cheesy, but if we made that as important or as nearly as important or even more important than the pursuit of money and <laughs> recognition, uh, it's amazing the difference that could have in our yeah. in our lives and, and globally, too. Because yeah. I, I think when we lead by example, mm-hmm. people who weren't raised with that as a part of their script. They yeah. didn't see that role being played by mm. uh, somebody. That can really uh, affect people. It yeah. can turn a light on in their head that, oh, wow, here's a way that I can feel good where I don't have to buy something. Mm-hmm. I don't have to you know, be inauthentic. Or, yeah. 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 It's true. Another um, tool in that same vein um, in the book is um, another way to mine your own life's memories to give yourself that dopamine hit. And I call it joy conditioning. So joy conditioning is the idea that you go back and and bring up a memory that just, you know, is just juicy and luscious and funny or whatever you want to make it choose your favorite positive emotion. And um, I recommend that you choose one that has a particular scent associated with it. Why? Because olfactory scent is particularly powerful at re-evoking or revivifying a memory. And so the one that I use is a particular yoga class that I took where I just I crushed it. You know, I did all the up dogs and the down dogs and I flipped my dog and I did everything. And then I was there in um, the the pose that I do the best, which is Shavasana, do that really well. And, you know, closing my eyes. And after, you know, I, I remember that feeling of I crushed it. I did so well. I feel really good about this. But then the teacher came around. And um, she had um, uh, lavender scent on her hand, and she kind of waved it under my nose and then gave me the most luscious five-second neck massage Mm. that I wasn't expecting. And so um, I literally, in my purse over there, is a little vial of um, lavender essence. And so when I need a little pick-me-up, it's like I just need to feel that, oh, feel good and an extra surprise. I smell that lavender and it brings back that, that memory for me. And so maybe for you, it's wood chips. Mm-hmm. You could, you know, you can go around with a little vial of wood chips and, <laughs> and, and remember your teacher and all the, you know, wonderful wood experience that you've had. But everybody has that. And so it's just, it's there for the taking. What a, what a great tip. Uh, and it's probably why certain foods are so satisfying to yes. us, not just the taste, but mm-hmm. the, the memory of, oh, I remember, you know, Friday night was taco night yeah. at, at, yeah. at home. Exactly. And, uh, any other uh, stuff you'd like to share from the book or just from your experience before uh, before we wrap up? Gosh, um, I I think that the closing message is at the end of the day, if we take a step back and um, really take a moment to consider what our anxiety tells us about ourselves, what we value, 
what we don't want in our lives. It's also telling us what we do want mm-hmm. in our lives kind of by in opposition. Then we can use, like fully use the tools that I give in this book to make anxiety work for us, to make anxiety help us make our lives less stressful because we're taking advantage of that energy activation mm-hmm. um, and we're learning from what anxiety is trying to protect us from. So that's what I mean by good anxiety. I, I, I love it. And I often use meditation for that because, you know, I'm quote unquote a bad meditator and that <laughs> yeah. sometimes I'll forget my mantra for 19 of the 20 minutes and yeah. I'm just sitting worrying about something. But when I then stop and say, wow, I haven't thought of my mantra or said my mantra in 19 minutes. I've just been thinking about, you know, the podcast yeah. and, you know, download numbers or, yeah. you know, that I played shitty at hockey on Friday night and everybody <laughs> hates me. I'm introduced to what is on my plate. Yes. Rather than just being those feelings, I can observe them. Yes. And, and say, well, maybe I need to go easier on myself. Yeah. You know, maybe I need to, you know, just do whatever work I can and turn the results over to the universe. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. Your book is called Good Anxiety. People can get it anywhere, I imagine. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's an audible version. So I recorded it every word myself. Uh, It's exhausting to read an entire book. I bet. (laughs) But it was so satisfying to be able to do that. So uh, if you like uh, to listen to your books, uh, it's also going to be available on Audible on September 7th. Uh, you're on Twitter at W.A. Suzuki. Mm-hmm. And uh, any other social media? or Yeah, I'm URLs? most active on Facebook and Instagram, which is Wendy.Suzuki or Wendy Suzuki. Um, you could also find me at my website, uh, www.WendySuzuki.com, where I invite everybody to come and participate in the Good Anxiety Citizen Science Project, where you can measure your anxiety, uh, the anxiety relief that you get with a whole wide range of different interventions and see the results um, as you participate oh, in the experiment. So cool. Well, thank you for coming by. I really uh, appreciate it. And kudos on uh, all, the, all the good work you're doing. Thank you so much. Many thanks to Dr. Suzuki. And we'll put the links to uh, her stuff in the show notes for this episode. Let's dive into some surveys. Oh, bef- before I get into some surveys, a thank you so much those of you that contributed to um a a there's a woman named Brooke who helps me with the show and she took it upon herself to solicit people's um comments either through email or voice message or video um telling me what the podcast has meant to them uh for the 10th anniversary that we celebrated a couple of months ago. And it just, it blew my mind, just blew my mind. And reading and hearing and watching, it was just, I can't put it into words, but thank you. Thank you so much. I might even, my girlfriend wants me to include some of those to air some of the things that, that people said, but I'm going to have to think on that. It might make, it might make, I don't know. It feels a little self-serving, but this is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself a deadhead. 
And about his depression, he writes, the shitty kind. Feels like I want to play video games nonstop while shooting coke and heroin all day. About his ADD, feels like I could do anything for about five minutes and it's on to the next thing. About his anxiety, my heart wants to jump out of my chest while my skin crawls off my muscles. Snapshot of his life. The progress made through the anxiety, ADHD, trauma, depression, and addiction always feels like a five million pound weight of marbles. And each day I take a marble from that jar jar on my shoulders while adding 50 more by the end of the day, or so it feels. Oh, buddy. I really, really hope you can find a way to manage your addiction because it's like if if we don't get that under control everything else suffers this is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself pump fake prophet and he writes so on the same day i find a porn star who checks all my kink boxes and in parentheses including reminding me of the married co-worker who has been flirting with me mercilessly for four years i also find out that she is currently fighting a breast cancer battle in real life i mean it won't stop me from beating off to her porn work for the next three weeks but there will be that voice in my head saying dude she could be dead now as i come I don't even know what to say. This is from the love survey filled out by Clark's Third Law. And they write, I love summer nights when I lay on freshly washed, cool white sheets. I love when a shy woman flirts with me. I love laughing in a group of friends. When a friend gives me sincere advice. I love the person I can be vulnerable with without harsh contemptuousness. And I love the moments I let go of fear and find out there was nothing to fear. That's a great one. Those are all great. Thank you for those. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Masha and the Bear. And uh, about her ADD, she writes, How the fuck did I manage to get on the wrong train to work again? (laughs) That is such a good one. Oh my God, the number of times I have missed a train stop or an exit. This is from the Love Survey, filled out by Hat Too Flat. And they write, uh, I love the way ink shines on the paper. That's such a great one. The Love Survey is just, it just makes my day. Just makes my day, especially when you guys come up with ones that I've never thought about. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a trans man who refers to himself as genderless anon. Uh, he identifies as pansexual. Actually, I don't know what what uh, I should probably have asked what pronouns uh, they prefer. So maybe I'll just use they because they. Uh, say genderless. 
they identify as pansexual. They're in their 20s. They were raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. They were sexually abused and never reported it. When I was around six years old, my older cousin took me in the bathroom that extended off my bedroom. I remember her sticking, uh, I don't know if it's, it says, I remember her sticking his hand down my pants, so I'm not sure if that person is male or female. Oh, it must be male, and me kissing him. I did not understand then and simply went along with it. These memories just recently resurfaced, and now it feels as if I'm dealing with his trauma for the first time. They're not sure if they've been physically abused. Um, any positive experiences with abusers? I remember when my older cousins, my brother, my brothers and I would go outside and play football or ride bikes together. I don't remember much from that time due to all the repressed memories, but I remember those summer days whenever I would have the time of my life outside with all of my favorite family members. It doesn't really complicate my feelings. I never really liked that specific cousin, and this just verified my dislike of him even more. Darkest Thoughts Sometimes I think about me raping my younger cousin or mother. I would never, ever put either of them in danger. I think about killing my whole family and then myself. I was recently diagnosed with a mild case of OCD, and I think that is where those thoughts come from. Darkest Secrets After I was abused by my cousin, I was abused by other kids my age and abused other kids my age. I made my younger cousin dry hump me on a bed shortly after the abuse. I would also make boys show me their penises and would tongue kiss them when they didn't want it. Similarly, the boys would make me show them my genitalia. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My sexual fantasies usually just involve being with someone I find attractive and that I love. I love the idea of giving head and I wouldn't stop until they told me to. I feel a bit uncomfortable sharing this because I'm a bit prudish. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish that I could tell my dad how badly he's hurt me and my family. I want him to realize the amount of pain and frustration that he's caused me. I want him to know who I really am. I want him to accept the fact that I'm queer and trans. I want him to love me. Wow, that is... That is such a powerful paragraph right there. I want him to know who I really am. That's so, I think that runs so deeply in all of us. And it's so painful when we want someone's love or acceptance and they won't give it to us. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for my life to finally be happy and well. I want to transition and change my name legally. I want to live my true self. I wish to make my mother happy. She's gone through so much and deserves so much more. Have you shared these things with others? I have not shared these things to people specifically. I've shared a bit with my counselor. Even then, I feel shameful for my thoughts and how I feel. I wish it were easier to talk to people. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel a bit relieved but also anxious. It was just great to write these things down. However, I fear that someone I know will find this and will find out that it's me. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I want to tell everyone that ever felt the way I feel 
is you are brave. You are worthy. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be scared. It's fine to cry. Don't be scared to ask for help and support. Trust people more. Trust dicks less. Trust dicks less. Live your life the way you want. Amen. A fucking man. Thank you for that. From the love survey, Isabel shares, I'm no professional dancer. Well then, Isabel, why did you fill this out? I'm going to read it anyway. I'm no professional dancer, but I love imagining choreographies while I listen to music on my headphones. Sometimes I can't help but to dance discreetly on the street, even though they look so much better in my head. I am so jealous of people who can feel so joyful that they just spontaneously start dancing while other people are around. That is, the universe has blessed you if you can, if you can experience unself-conscious moments like that. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Safflower. Well, I enjoy your oil. She identifies as straight. Uh, she's 19, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, my brother used to touch me and even rub his genitals to mine when I was between 7 and 11. He's four years older than I am. I used to pretend to be asleep because it did feel good in a way I couldn't understand, even though a friend of mine dealing with abuse in her own household introduced me to masturbation and even porn that early. I've been addicted to sex and porn ever since, and I feel so sick and robbed of my childhood or a normal relationship with my brother or any other man. I've never told anyone, but how could I if I secretly enjoyed it? Those are two separate things. Our body and our soul can experience two completely different things at the same time. It just feeds into the shame and self-disgust. I feel like I'm never going to be able to fully accept what happened to myself. She is not sure if she's ever been physically abused. Uh, I would say yes. I grew up watching my dad, who was an alcoholic and had abused illegal and prescription drugs, beat my mom's uh, LOL. I think... That's supposed to be a lot of the time. A few times almost killing her. Isn't that amazing how we can minimize something that is so clearly abusive? Exposing a child to that? My brother pretended never to see it, ignored it, and took out his anger problems by beating me up as well. I was so young that none of it hit me as abnormal until I turned 12. After me and my mother moved into my cunt of a grandmother's place. Interesting fact, my cunt of a grandmother's place, least successful restaurant ever. If you've never seen that list of unsuccessful restaurants, I think you should check it out. A lot of people feel that the one just above that, my uncle's dirty anus, should have been at the bottom, but it attracted quite a following. Uh... 
This is when I became self-aware and I realized I was toxic in my interactions with people. I more apparently developed severe depression and panic disorder as the years went on. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I don't see my dad at all, although my brother moved back into my house in the summer of 2016, right after I graduated high school, and he got out of the Marines. We hated each other up until January of 2017. His entire demeanor changed, and he started helping me with going to the gym and encouraging me to eat better. It still confuses me, and I'm still really uncomfortable sometimes, although in a way, I do depend on him since he helps me with things no one else does. Besides, I just have to have a connection to my only sibling to feel a little less alone. Darkest Thoughts I used to imagine and create scenarios in my head in middle school using objects I saw in the classroom to beat the shit out of or kill people who said bad things about me or people I assumed were talking shit about me. As I got into high school, it became more of a sexual thing. Darkest Secrets I tried to do sexual things to one of my male dogs when I was young. I'm fucking terrible. No, you are not fucking terrible. That is not uncommon for someone to do that. And you were a kid growing up in fucking chaos. And you'd been sexualized at a young age. You you are not terrible. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Through abusing porn and masturbation, nothing can get me off anymore, and it becomes a chore in my intimate relationship sometimes, which is so hard because that's what I know a lot about, and I make myself believe I feel comfortable doing it all the time, even when I really don't. I depersonalize from it, and it breaks my heart. I always break down, accusing them of only wanting to be with me so they can have sex with me because I let them. What, if anything, do you wish for? To not be a ball of sickness and negative energy. To not be a people pleaser to the point where I want to kill myself. And maybe to wake up someday and have friends and a happy relationship with those I can care about. Have you shared these things with others? I haven't. Not much other than I had some prior abuse with a psychiatrist in the past, but I haven't gotten any help within the last two years. How do you feel after writing these things down? I haven't really processed everything, and I always make my experiences seem like a lot less than they really were. Just reading what I wrote out is like, oh, okay, well, fuck, man, nice. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are not alone. We all have something to process and digest. Please talk to someone and you know what happened to you or people you love is valid and that you do deserve to be loved no matter what. You are a human being. It's amazing how we can say to other people what we just can't take in ourselves, how we make ourselves the exception to just basic human compassion and love and validation. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Ellen DeGenerate. 
And about her depression, her postnatal depression, uh, she writes, Instead of motherly love filling every cell of my body, as I was led to believe would happen after seeing my daughter, instead every cell of me emptied of anything that used to make me, me. I looked into my baby's eyes and felt nothing. I am a milk-producing shell of darkness instead of a mother. About her low self-esteem, laying back in the MRI scanner, hoping they find something at least moderately serious so I haven't wasted everyone's time. Oh, my God. Thank you for those, and I'm so sorry that you're going through the postnatal depression. I, I... The people that I've talked to, the guests, the people I know in life outside the podcast that have experienced that, it sounds so, so fucking overwhelming. And we've done a couple of episodes on that. So if you haven't, if there's ever any subject you want to know if there's an episode on it, just Google mental pod and then whatever keywords you're looking for. And if there's an episode on that, it will usually uh, pop up on your search. From the love survey, just Jess writes, I love when stormy weather holds out just long enough for me to go for a run midday, but not so long that I have to water the garden at the end of the day. I love when I hear a song I've heard a hundred times in a different context because of where I am or who I'm with or what I'm doing, and it forever ties that song with that happy memory. Oh, that's such a great one. I love when my dog farts and startles himself like he doesn't know where that sound and smell just came from. I do love that one, too. I love when my husband says something so ridiculous that he laughs out loud at his own joke. I love when my weather app gets poetic and forecasts abundant sunshine for the day. I love washing my feet with the hose after gardening on a hot day. Oh, those are awesome. Thank you. Thank you for those. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by uh, Otter. Uh, He identifies as gay. He is in his 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I had a semi-consensual interaction with a massage therapist. It started as a really good massage, and I received oral sex I did not consent to. Well, that does not sound like even semi-consensual, and that's incredibly unprofessional and illegal for a massage therapist to do that. At the time, I left quickly and never spoke of it. He has been emotionally abused by boyfriends. No positive experiences with them. Darkest thoughts, wanting to kill myself just to see if anyone would notice. I feel like I'm a spectator to the world and that I'm insignificant. Everyone who says they care or love me is just saying that because I'm useful to them, not because they actually care. I have vivid incest fantasies about my cousins. Darkest secrets. I had sex with my cousin twice. He approached me as bi-curious and wanting to experiment. We were both very drunk on both occasions. He was only interested in oral sex, and I wanted to have anal sex with him. Ever since, our relationship has been weird. I don't regret it per se, but our cousinly relationship was in better condition than it is now. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. 
I have sexual fantasies revolving around control and vorophilia. Uh, vorophilia, I had to look this up, is the fantasy of being uh, literally consumed uh, by someone else. Uh, as well as incest and physical transformations, including being transformed into someone else's genitals or inanimate objects. Most of them involve me ceasing to have any agency in my own life and being at the mercy or pleasure of a mo more powerful man. I also like to imagine taking someone else's existence for my own pleasure, bending them to my sexual will. Basically, the weirder it is, the more it seems to turn me on. Sharing this is indifferent to me because I don't know you. If I did, I would rather commit suicide than tell you. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Anytime someone complains about one social group being the cause of the world's problems, I want to scream at them at the top of my lungs, just fucking stop. You're not special. You're not better than anyone else. You all suck about the same as I do. And the only reason you are here, you are, is dumb fucking luck. If those people had the advantages you have had, they would be in a better situation. What, if anything, do you wish for? to be dumb enough not to care what happens in the world anymore, to be blissfully ignorant. I also wish to have a fulfilling sex life. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared both. On being dumb, was told that it wouldn't make me feel any better and to get over it. On my sex life, my current partner was crushed. For both, after I shared, I felt selfish and guilty. <sighs> That sucks that they reacted that way because that, that just seems really uncompassionate and uh, obviously judgmental. And fuck them. How do you... I look out then I judge them. <laughs> they want to hurt you? They should be killed. How do you feel after writing these things down? Guilty. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I'm broken too. You know, the, the word broken, I so much prefer the word wounded because I really do believe that, that we can heal. Oh God, that sounded so new agey. Let me take off my sandals and my robe. This is a happy moment filled out by Billy. He writes, or she writes, one of my happiest moments was one of the simplest things in the world. And those are my favorites. In the 1920s, the pool I swam at, swim at was the largest outdoor pool in North America. It's huge. Before the pandemic, I swam there every free moment I got. It was always full of wonderful people chatting and floating and just enjoying life. One day, I was at the pool, dressed in my swimming suit and ready to go as soon as they unlocked the door to the pool. I slowly walked out, found a place for my things, then headed for the pool. As I walked down the steps, I noticed no one else was in the pool. The little ripples from my feet and legs were the only movement on the otherwise perfectly calm water. It felt like I was discovering a new planet, or like I was the first person standing on the moon. I'm not sure why it felt like such a huge deal, but as I swam across the pool, making my very own little waves... I was as happy as a person can be. Oh, man, do I love that. 
that, that to me is like the very definition of being present. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself no one special. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Yes, I would say it definitely counts. I've experienced a lot of uncomfortable and traumatic sexual experiences over the course of my life. The first, I mean, doesn't that just speak to how much we want to minimize what happened to us? The very first sentence is, is, I've experienced a lot of uncomfortable and traumatic sexual experiences. Right after she filled out, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. The first highly memorable moment happened when I was probably seven. I lived in a townhouse complex that had a basement hallway connecting all units to the car garage and the laundry room. One afternoon, while I was playing in the courtyard, unattended, as was normal for us then, a man who I recall being a superintendent or something like that invited me to see something that he said I'd like. He was probably in his 40s. I remember trusting him, like maybe we had spoken before, or he was just really nice. Anyway, he brought me into a room in the basement hallway. It seemed like a broom closet, and it had many junction boxes along the walls. There was nothing special about it, and I don't know why I stayed. Perhaps I just felt awkward and like I couldn't leave. The man asked me if I wanted to dance with him. I don't remember what I said, but he took my hand and gestured, gestured for me to step onto a stool so that the top of my head reached to about his chest. He put his arms around me and held me right up against him. He swayed and told me he loved dancing. I'm not sure how I got out of there, but I did. I don't remember how I felt in the moment, but now I feel upset that I never told anyone. Maybe I was too ashamed or felt like I had done something wrong. I'm not sure. I wish that I had told my parents, because in my heart, I feel that they would have believed me and they would have done something about it. I didn't recall this incident until a few years ago, like I had blocked it from my memory. A conversation with a friend sparked the memory, and it came flooding back to me. I now think about it often, and because there's no chance of recourse, I have no idea who that man actually was or what he looked like, I don't know where to put the feelings I have about it. I've only told one person about it, I guess because it's not something I want to share very much. Thank you for for sharing that. that, that uh, and it's such... An example that our clothes don't have to be off for something to be really fucking traumatizing. You know, feeling unsafe is feeling unsafe. It doesn't matter what we're wearing. Darkest thoughts. I've never told anyone this, and I feel nervous just typing it, but I often fantasize about sex with my father. The fantasies are usually about the moment when sexual contact might begin, like a tender or intimate moment turned sexual or sometimes about one of us giving the other head. I picture us in a number of different locations and scenarios. Some are significant to when I was growing up. Sometimes I picture myself when I was younger, sometimes in the present day. The thought of actually doing this with my dad repulses me, but I do love to fantasize about it. I've also thought about sex with my older brothers, but this is less appealing to me. I have sought out pornography, 
exploring father-daughter dynamics, but everything I found is either extremely cheesy and crass or a little too real and makes me feel sad. I've asked my boyfriend what he thinks about incorporating power dynamics like that into sex, and he is super not into it. He also seemed grossed out by the mere suggestion of me calling him daddy, so I don't think I'll really have an opportunity to explore this fantasy anytime soon. I couldn't bear to tell my boyfriend what goes on in my head. It's just too embarrassing. I often wonder if I'm a sick, disgusting freak, but on your your show, you say that it's not hurting anyone. Just go with it. I'm trying to accept that. Darkest Secrets. And I relate to to that, by the way, the having fantasies that in real life repulse me. And um, you are not alone in that. You are not alone in that. Darkest Secrets. It's kind of gotten to the point where I almost can't orgasm unless I build up a fantasy about my dad. Like I can be having perfectly good sex or receiving oral sex and be enjoying it, but the moment I allow myself to think about my dad, I immediately become way more aroused and reach climax much more quickly. This experience is always tempered with questioning myself and hating myself for relying on this fucked up fantasy. I don't know where it comes from, really, but I'd love to talk with a professional about it one day, not necessarily to fixate on it or change it, but just to understand what's going on inside my brain. Well, you know, my dime store opinion is it's related <clears throat> to what happened in that closet. You know, there there was a older male figure that sexualized you and brought things I mean it sounds like it was sexual contact certainly to him and very often the things that traumatized us or make us nervous in real life are the very things that turbocharge our orgasm as fucked up as that is that's the way our brains work Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. The most powerful fantasies are my dad and I cuddling innocently and it's slowly leading to sexual contact, like him beginning to finger me or rubbing his me rubbing his crotch and beginning to go down on him. Sharing it makes me feel ashamed and thinking about it makes me feel turned on. To be honest, I was halfway through writing this section of the survey when my boyfriend came home. I felt nervous and closed my laptop straight away. We were having sex within three minutes. I allowed myself to think about my dad without any self-criticism. I encouraged myself to do it. Uh, and then parentheses, I'm sorry this is so graphic, but I think this helps to illustrate how intense this is for me. I had an orgasm almost right away from vaginal penetration while I was on top without any added stimulation. This has maybe happened once or twice before in my life. I have slept with my boyfriend hundreds and hundreds of times and have never come so quickly. What the F? Question mark. Have you shared these things with others? Never. It's so taboo and so embarrassing. I would talk to a sex therapist about it though. I would encourage I would encourage you to do that because feeling validated by talking to a sex therapist can be really, really healing and empowering. And you're not going there to change what turns you on. You know, we don't, we don't have that control. But you can change how you feel about it and how you express it. How do you feel after writing? And I'm sorry that your boyfriend just shut you down on that. Um, 
that sucks to, to feel alone with that rather than being able to, to share it. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? It feels good to share, but also totally shameful and confusing. I'd like to understand why I have these feelings. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? This is weird and confusing, but you are not alone. Thank you for that. Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? I would love an episode on the topic of incest or father-daughter sexuality. Uh, you should listen to the episode with Leah McCord. I believe it's rerun as a best of episode, and she talks about that. And I think you would feel less uh, alone listening to that one. Um, and if, again, like I said, if you Google um, Metal Pod and the keyword you're looking for, some stuff will come up. And then finally, this is a, uh, from the Love Survey filled out by Human Muppet. And they write, I love when I'm riding the Chicago Blue Line train and the wheels kind of grate on the track so that the train vibrates and I can feel it up and down my spine. My teeth buzz and my sore muscles feel less so. I don't know if it's good to have my body shaking like that, but it feels good, so I've decided that it is. Oh Yeah, I don't know of any train that shakes like the Chicago L. It is... And many times it has fallen off the tracks. I love when my girlfriend tells me about something I've done that hurt her. In the moment it feels terrible, but it's proof to me that we're invested in loving each other and when we can talk about something painful together without fear of abandonment. Yes, yes, a hundred times yes. That is, to me, one of the foundations of intimacy is the willingness and the tools to have a difficult conversation with someone that we want to keep in our life. I love being able to say yes when someone asks me for help. I love coming out of a cold room into the warm sun and feeling my irises tighten when the light hits me, feeling the sun on my skin. I love when someone gets visibly excited to see me. Oh, that's a great one. I love the smell of old Catholic churches. And I love finding exactly the right words for what I mean. Oh, yes, those are awesome. Thank all of you for, for your surveys. It just, this podcast would not be what it is without the depth that, that you guys go to and sharing what's going on inside you. And it just, um, as painful as some of that stuff is to read sometimes, it it feels validating to me. It helps me feel less alone, and it helps me feel a sense of meaning and purpose in sharing it publicly so that other people can feel less alone. Anyway, I hope you, I hope you got something out of this episode, and if you're feeling stuck, you are so not alone, so, so, so not alone, and help is out there if we're willing to get out of our comfort zone and open up, whether it's a support group or therapy or a trusted friend. I encourage you, if you've never done it, to take baby steps towards trying it. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.